This is the Saxo Market Call. Daily insights on what is moving the financial markets. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It is Thursday, 27th of October, 2022. So we uh, we see another one of these uh, days where we get an intraday rally and that rally is spoiled late in trading. And after hours, this time it is meta cratering some 20% on their result. We'll get to you that on that in a minute, Peter. But um, one of the key things to point out here was the uh, the technical zone we discussed, this 3,900 area. So the, the lower bit of the 39 to 3,925 area held in the S&P 500 uh, as resistance. Uh, looking at the theme baskets, though, Peter, it doesn't look like it was that bad of a performance uh, across the board. But um, uh, I think just the, the the way we came down from the intraday highs just maybe speaks a little bit more about this was maybe at least for, for tactically uh, a bit of a line in the sand we've drawn for for resistance. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the um, if you look at the theme baskets on the one day performance, that's not the one I've sorted on. But you can see that the the, the theme that stands out, of course, uh, is bubble stocks down one point seven percent. So there's definitely quite a substantial spillover from uh, from Microsoft, uh, Result, uh, Alphabet, and and Meta. And some have been arguing that, and really like this idea that one of the largest buyers in the bubble stocks categories, the bubble stocks, being these this type of uh, this, these type of companies that are turbocharged on revenue growth by massive capital injections and running losses. And in most cases, not that it's per se the, the objective, but in many cases, it ends up being just bought out by one of the major technology companies. And they have been a major M&A engine for years. And then <clears throat> maybe that's the, the next dynamic that will happen, that with all these major technology companies on the back foot and, and uh, seeing reduced revenue growth and, and lower operating income, that this M&A activity will slow down. And that's uh, you know closing the exit door for a lot of these bubble stocks companies. But I've sorted on the uh, the uh, one week uh, return because if you look at just compared to where we were one week ago, it has been a quite a good uh, week for financial trading firms. Uh, semiconductors are recovering from a lot of the volatility. Defense is still very strong, and then we have had that response from lower uh, interest rates into more high beta uh, equity themes like next gen medicine, which is essentially very uh, aggressive biotechnology companies, and then uh, then e commerce. So. Um, Interesting development, and I don't know, John, whether you want to to talk jump right away to to Meta, or we should wait with that uh, when stocks 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 to watch. Yeah, let, let's wait for that because I think I want to pick up your narrative thread there on that one week performance, and of course, it has coincided with what we discussed yesterday in terms of a conspiracy theory, or at least a a combination of factors here that are leading to this uh, melt up, almost you would call it, in risk sentiment. And that is, of course, lower yields as the narrative is that central banks are set to decelerate, that we could be at some major pivot point that will support asset prices. Um, you know, the, the devil's advocate says, well, what about the fact that if there is a pivot, it's because we're going into recession and isn't that supposed to be bad at some point? But we'll park that for now. But the, otherwise, of course, uh, one thing that happened yesterday was that, that encouraged this narrative was the Bank of Canada only hiking 50 basis points versus the very strong lean for a 75 basis point move uh, after that very hot uh, September CPI number out of Canada. And they're indicating caution on the forward growth, saying they're gonna, there's going to be, uh, you know, the growth is going to be, quote, close to zero for the next few quarters, unquote. And uh, deciding on that that smaller hike, even though they say they're going to continue to tighten. Just that, that note of caution, again, encourages this pivot narrative. And no surprise to see the dollar weaker in general, but also it just show, goes to show you how much any sort of pivot will affect the dollar because even though we don't have a signal necessarily yesterday from the FOMC 
The Canadian dollar managed to claw back all of its losses despite two-year Canadian rates dropping 25 basis points. I mean, that's a huge move. Uh, and Dollar Canada did rally as a knee-jerk reaction to that Bank of Canada meeting, but then fell sort of back to where it came from uh, into the 135, uh, low 135s again, uh, despite the Canadian rates being marked lower. So any type of yield direction change, just it doesn't matter about the spreads. It's about is the U.S. heading towards uh, bringing back a bit more liquidity or not? And that's what we saw. So we see on uh, slide three with the FX board, the dollar moving into negative territory. We have sort of broken key dollar supports in a number of pairs. I, I listed those uh, yesterday with uh, parity falling in euro dollar, 115 in cable, uh, 64 in Aussie dollar. The big one now is dollar yen though, 145, a, a big area there. And I put the chart there on slide three. And I would argue that this is uh, really only going to be threatened if we get a, a solid break below 4% on that 10-year benchmark. Uh, broken sort of sustainably and significantly, I should say, uh, unless, uh, and this would be the shock of all shocks, the Bank of Japan tonight somehow uh, decides to change its tune. And why would it when now it's getting relief in the form of lower yields and a stronger Japanese yen? There's that much less reason for them to, to cave on their yield curve control policy. Uh, the other thing, interesting thing to point out, of course, is that continuing uh, weakness in the Chinese renminbi, although this has come off with uh, the dollar correction, at least in the terms of the, the main focus, which is on the dollar UN rate. And I am going to get back to you, Peter, but right now I think it's a really interesting story to pick up on energy. We kind of touched on it yesterday. I'm not sure we emphasized it uh, enough, though. You know, there's been all these headlines about relief, mild weather, et cetera, in Europe, leading the spot price to become a bit of a non-issue, at least at the moment, relative to the drumbeat of concerns in Europe. But natural gas is one thing. Diesel is another. And, and Ola, talk us through, again, what is conspiring here to make diesel uh, diesel priced at, what did you say, something like $400 per barrel equivalent? That's what the, sort of the, the crack or whatever it's called, uh, uh, refining margins sort of indicate that this is the, what you would expect diesel to cost if oil was 400 bucks a barrel. Indeed, John. And um, well, it's, it's several things. Uh, I think the first of all, uh, what, what really kicked this off uh, was not the war, but the uh, pandemic, because it led to... Uh, the economic weakness we had following in, in the immediate after, aftermath led to uh, some refineries being uh, shut down. And we all know about the, in, the lack of investment appetite for new, new plants and so on. Um, refinery activity in, in years has been a relatively boring, uh, low, uh, low growth, low income uh, area, but uh, that obviously has changed dramatically in, in, uh, over the past year. So what we're faced with right now is, uh, is uh, sanctions against Russia, reducing supplies uh, from from uh, from Russia, we are uh, we have OPEC plus cutting production. They are cutting the pr the primary source of this production cut is uh, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and UAE. They are producing what we call high yielding distillate crude oil, so a medium to, to medium grade um, uh, quality of crude, which is uh, which is really which is quite useful when you refine into into distillate products like jet fuel, heating oil, and diesel. That is uh, that is that supply is going to be uh, be lowered, and and at the same time, uh, we basically got uh, inventory levels in the U.S. continue to uh, to drop because exports remain firm because we are buying what we can here in Europe at this point in time. So um, I put in the uh, on slide four the the uh, ULSD. Uh, it used to be called heating oil uh, futures contract. So ULSD is now the light sulfur diesel contract. In New York, and as you can see, while we, we while we've got WTI doing uh, range-bound dancing uh, for the for the time being, we're seeing heating oil crawling higher. 
And as if uh, the, the this is the front month's contract of November, as if that was worse, just take a look at the spread below in the small insert. That is the November-December spread. And for December, the spread is already trading something like 11 or around $45 above. So we are looking at a an 11% jump uh, in the price when we move into the December contract. So the market is really worried about tightness this coming winter. Some of the parts of the U.S. are already running extremely low. They're already talking about rationing. And that's where the whole issue about strategic reserves being released in order to curb gasoline price ahead of the midterm election. This is just a very faulty uh, assumption that it will have an impact because the U.S. consumer doesn't need crude oil. They need diesel. And for that, they need refinery capacity. And that's really where we have the whole issue right now. Added to that, just in the top, we can see the EIs in the weekly updates showed that the exports of total export of U.S. oil and fuel exceeded 11 million barrels a day last week that's a record at the same time crude oil export exceeded 5 million barrels also an export also a, a record how long will that continue to be allowed uh, going out of the u.s if the if the consequences is very very weak stock levels in the u.s and high prices it's just unbelievable it's re release your strategic reserves and then uh, in one form or another export them uh, it makes it it's so short-sighted and clearly politically motivated it's going to be interesting to see that the bill is paid on the other side of this, at some point, if demand doesn't just absolutely get uh, you know crumpled in the in the future months, all right. Now we have a bit of action. Finally, not quite decisive, fully decisive in terms of the range, but an interesting day yesterday for copper, as you're pointing out on the following slide. Yeah, exactly. We uh, we just like uh, showed on the crude oil chart, we've been uh, we've been stuck in a relatively or in an airing range now for in, in copper since July. Uh, we had a pop yesterday. We broke above the uh, 55 day moving average. We also broke that downtrend uh, that's been in place uh, in recent months. Um, so we're holding above that level, which is now support the 350 level. Um, it's not enough to attract uh, new renewed interest. You can see on the slide five as well the speculative interest from from hedge funds. They have been they are neutral to slightly short right now, and for that really to change, we need to see a. A, a break to the upside, and and uh, and th this break is not it. It's not strong enough for that to uh, to happen. But I think it's interesting. It's happening at a time where the market still has been very focused on the the recession risks and so on. And it just highlights there is underlying demand coming into this copper market. Not only, uh, and I'd say especially in China, where where the market's probably been a bit perplexed about the copper's ability or the demand for copper, despite the property uh, sector slowdown we're seeing there. So. Um, so it, it's it's a sector we, we still like we like copper, um, but uh, it's it's just like gold and silver. It's probably not we're not there yet, uh, really ready for 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 a bounce in a major way. Okay, and now uh, let's uh, we get back to the equity market because there are a couple of very interesting stories. The most interesting of which is Meta, and um, you had a few choice, uh, I believe, French words, uh, Peter, describing some of the uh, uh, things that are going on, and it's just a very interesting bid Mark Zuckerberg is making for this uh, metaverse. And the shareholders are not enthused. So take us through what happened and why it's down almost 20% uh, after hours. <clears throat> yeah, this is a big story. So um, I put it out in my in my equity note yesterday to clients that um, the market, I would say investors, were sending a very strong signal to Meta's board of directors, but apparently they don't have any power over the company. It's only run by Mark Zuckerberg. They're sending a pretty clear signal that, listen, you need to dial down your ambitions on the metaverse. Um that was that was the message, and um, apparently uh, Mark Zuckerberg is is doubling down. So, and he's doubling down while his core business in in online advertising is facing severe headwinds from these uh, da data privacy changes from Apple that has, you know, caused uh, tracking. 
uh, more difficult for for Meta, and therefore the ad pricing power has has uh, gone down considerably. You know, you had revenue growth of minus five percent year on year, almost a, 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 a significant decline in operating income. And if you look at the Metaverse uh, division, how you know their revenue missed against estimates completely. And that's an indication that the the growth trajectory and, and and adoption rate is much lower than what the market expected. And that means that the forward-looking and long-term growth profile of this bet is significantly lower. And thereby also you need to you need to reduce the uh, the the uh, the valuation of the company. And I mean, as I said, I mean in an internal discussion with Dean, I mean, it, it, if this metaverse bet goes really wrong. Um, this could be the this is this could be become the the big inflection point um, in in U.S. capital markets where the Silicon Valley model of uh, A and B shares with enormous power to one individual instead of the more you know the old classic way of the U.S. equity market with the one share one vote uh, will be questioned pretty hard and it goes to the ESG and I've always found it funny that you have a lot of these Silicon Valley companies being uh, very heavy. Uh, heavy index weighters in the in the ESG funds when they should, in my opinion, score extremely low on on governance. I mean, of all the governance factors, the the A and B structure with sole power to one individual, where that really you know cripple a crop, uh, you know, cripple the um, the board of directors to just being yes men and women, is just very bad. And I think that's what's happening in Meta. I'm I'm very very curious to see going forward from here because what they're saying in their outlook is that they they will see even bigger operating losses from their metaverse in 2023 and they only going to keep the employee uh, employee level at the end of next year by the same level as they had at the end of Q3 this year so they're not even they're not even cutting down on the number of employees despite you know the the signals that I could go on John and I think it's a very big story and I think it's a it's also a story about Silicon Valley living in a totally different world apparently than, than, than what we have been discussing on this podcast for, for over a year. They, they're simply not seeing it. But I, and I wonder whether they will only understand it the hard way. Yeah. And then uh, elsewhere, of course, and then we have the, some bigger ones, even bigger ones uh, still coming up tonight <clears throat> in terms of earnings. Uh, another after the after the close special, if you will. You'll get to that in a second. But just uh, anything you want to mention on this credit speech story, there was a lot of uh, concern at one point. Uh, uh, you know, was this some kind of systemic risk around the Credit Suisse and the, the Swiss banking system, et cetera. But it looks like there was something to it. At least they've, they've got a big uh, force to recognize a large loss here and doing some kind of restructuring. Yeah, they are recognizing a very sizable loss. Uh, they, they're coming out with a loss of $4 billion for the quarter. And they're selling all these toxic assets to PIMCO, um, uh, among other investors, uh, in, a, in a special, uh, special uh, vehicle purpose uh, entity so and, and then they're going out to raise and uh, raise capital of around four billion dollars and they're doing a ma- massive restructuring of their entire business so i mean it's uh when when the cfo was out saying or the ceo was out saying a couple of weeks ago that the, that everything was fine it, it, you know the lesson we learned from 2008 of course is that when a banking ceo or cfo is saying something is is fine when the stock price is under pressure it's it's because it, it's not fine right um, and that's the capital raise that they're doing right now. So, um, but I think they, they, I think they will, they will manage the capital raise, and they will, will try to restructure. Let's see what what Credit Suisse look like, will look like in the in the future. And then we have Shell, one of the largest uh, energy companies, oil and gas majors um, here in Europe, reporting uh, earnings a little bit better than expected. Cash flow on the weak side, though, against expectation, they're lifting their dividends, 
And they will, they're saying that they are going to complete their $4 billion buyback program by Q4. I haven't really had the time to look into the capital expenditure plans, but then, because that's really the key one for, for future growth. Um, but then, yeah, in, in general, very good results uh, in uh, across European earnings. And, and that's also the, the headline on slide seven, John. I mean, if you look at the, the chart in the lower right-hand corner, I mean, the, the blue the blue bars there uh, are European earnings. And European earnings uh, right now are the only ones that are, that are up uh, quarter and quarter. Uh, the rest is down, China and the U.S. So it's uh, Europe is a bright spot. Um, and if we look ahead today, we have uh, key earnings from Shopify. That's a Canadian stock, very important. Uh, Ulist's uh, story on diesel and distillate products, uh, I think is a story worth uh, watching in Nesta, which is one of the biggest refining companies here in Europe. It's a Finnish company. And then if we look ahead uh, towards the U.S. earnings, releases later today we have apple and amazon and i think with the slowdown we're seeing in global advertising the high energy cost impact on margins for running cloud businesses and especially for amazon the and apple slowdown on the consumer side of things i expect potentially a, a weak outlook for those two companies mastercard should do well just like uh, visa did the other day we have mcdonald's interesting to watch those on the consumer side and then intel uh on the semiconductor macro play and then finally caterpillar uh because that's really the beacon of global construction and and mining activities, so um, there's a lot of interesting things on the plate today. Certainly are, and, uh, and that's uh, also the case for the macro calendar. If we look at slide eight, there, so we have an ECB meeting up today. They are expected to deliver the 75 basis points, which will double the deposit rate to one and a half percent. Looking for guidance, I don't think the ECB will be want want to be specific, but uh, the market is pricing in 50 basis points, so we have to watch how guidance impacts uh, the next meeting's pricing. Uh, supposedly, we're going to hear some talks about plans about potentially thinking about maybe one day doing quantitative tightening. I honestly don't believe it's ever going to materially happen. And then the time frame is supposed to be late 2023 anyway. And they're probably not going to announce much uh, in the way in that uh, area until the December meeting. So it's all about uh, how does the market greet this decision? Is there really much to, to sort of ring out of guidance here? I'm not so sure. I think it'll quickly yield to what is the general narrative around have we sort of priced a pivot uh, fairly now f- across the board, whether it's the ECB, the Fed, otherwise, or are we concerned that uh, we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves? And really, the main event is next uh, Wednesday's FOMC meeting anyway. Um, so watch that. Watch the latest weekly claims out of the U.S. So we're uncertain status on the trajectory of those. The Q3 GDP estimate, this can have an impact if it's particularly strong, I would say, especially uh, a negative trade balance number suggesting it might be marginally weaker. Uh, on that side of things, uh, durable goods orders for September also up later today. And uh, in Ola space, the natural gas, the weekly storage situation there, I think, if I recall, uh, looking pretty healthy in the U.S., but the focus in energy markets is more on that, that diesel price anyway. A very strong uh, treasury auction, by the way, of five years uh, notes. And we have seven year notes auctioned up today. Overnight, watch the Bank of Japan meeting, some potential around that. I, I doubt if they want to change the signaling just yet. But of course, if they do. Look out for the volatility as well. This will be the first October CPI number, the Tokyo CPI number out late. And that is, uh, again, have these uh, food price adjustments that were supposed to happen on the 1st of October, those feeding through into some surprising uh, headline readings there. Interesting one on that front. Tomorrow, the PCE inflation is one of the last data points ahead of next week's, uh, next Wednesday's FOMC meeting. Uh, surprise of the core could uh, jolt markets around a little bit, given where we're, how sort of aggressively we're leaning on this uh, narrative here. Uh, in terms of the uh, 
uh, in terms of the central bank pivot, et cetera. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, lots to focus on. Markets, uh, are, I think we can safely say, should stay fairly volatile here. And we'll have to see where we are tomorrow. We'll check in with the next Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>